0: Welcome to the Smeichel Speaks podcast channel. I'm Joanne Smichael and I'm delighted that you tuned in for relevant leadership learning that will help you continue to soar. Enjoy this episode. This is the beginning of a series called See Something, Do Something. I am featuring people all over the country who saw a pressing need and then did something about it. And I'm starting the series with Dr. Alex Porter Humphrey, the founder of Elevate Med. And I cannot tell you how excited I am to have her with me today. Let me tell you, it's a Scottsdale based organization that's committed to elevating the field of medicine by providing financial support and mentorship to future physicians. The aim is to increase the physician workforce diversity and improve the cultural competence of physicians so that we can reduce health disparities. Welcome, Dr. Humphrey. I am so excited, sincerely excited, to launch this series with Elevate Med because you saw something and you really did do something.
1: Thank you so much for that welcome, Joanne. I'm delighted to be here. Will you tell us a little bit about your background? Absolutely. I am a neuro-oncologist, which means that I take care of patients who have brain cancer and um, patients who have neurologic complications from their cancer treatments. So for example, if someone has lung cancer and it travels to the brain, um, that ends up falling within my purview, or if they have neurologic side effects because of their um, cancer treatment, that's something that I um, do as well. And so I always wanted to be a physician um, ever since I was inspired by the Cosby show Thursday night, must see TV. Um, But I didn't, other than the knowledge of the fictional character, Dr. Heathcliff Huxtable, I had never met a black physician. I um, didn't know what was possible Um, for me until Mm -hmm. I saw that imagery on the TV and then later was inspired by Dr. Ben Carson, who was a neurosurgeon who had come to international acclaim at the time for having separated twins conjoined at the brain. And that was really my first introduction to neurosciences. And I saw myself really um, reflected in the pages of his autobiography as um, someone whose curiosity really exceeded their immediate circumstance And someone Mm -hmm. who potentially had been uh, underestimated along the way or didn't look like the typical. And so it became very clear to me that um, in order to do what I um, imagined for myself in my career, that I was going to have to learn to be a bit brave and learn to take some risks Mm -hmm. and be a bit more comfortable with being the only or the first. um, Because I recognize that um, that's often what's required of many of us who seek to make a difference.
0: So tell me, where'd you go to school? Those kinds of things, because I know you're an HBCU
1: graduate. I am indeed. I grew up in Scottsdale, Arizona, and I went to Spelman College in Atlanta. Spelman is a historically Black women's college, liberal um, arts-based college, and there I was an English major, biochemistry minor. I spent one year of my undergraduate studies at the University of Sussex in Brighton, England. I really love literature. And I found that having that um, international experience, especially being able to spend a year in England, allowed me to really cultivate that love while still um, taking the science courses that um, afforded me the minor in biochemistry and allowed me to move ahead as pre-med and um, have a um, straight line uh, path, I'll say, to medical school at Temple University in Philadelphia. I graduated from Temple University School of Medicine in um, 2003 and went on to Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota for my internship, neurology residency and neurooncology fellowship. And then was recruited um, here to Mayo Clinic in Arizona in 2008, where I've led the brain tumor program here.
0: Since what an that- interesting trajectory. What an interesting trajectory. I don't feel like I did such a great job introducing Elevate Med. So will you just tell us what it is and, and also what made you want to found it?
1: Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for the question. Because when I got to medical school, I, um, had been so focused on just get in, do all the things that are necessary to just get in and the, how I was going to pay for it, um, came as a secondary, And so on my first day of medical school, before we even took any classes, we got separated into the haves and the have-nots, those that had financial support to pay for the education and those that had not. And I come from a family that's emotionally supportive, but financially was unable to foot the bill for medical school. And I had a full, I had a presidential scholarship to Spelman College. So I had no undergrad uh, debt in the time that I entered medical school. And On that day where we were separated, um, I looked around at those of us have-nots and many of us shared- Were you
0: literally separated? Is that for real? Yes,
1: yeah. So those of us that couldn't pay. We got taken to a room, um, and in that room, there were um, three desks that we were um, charged with going to visit. And I noticed some similarities between those of us that were in that room together. Most of us came from backgrounds that are considered underrepresented in medicine. So that's the Black or African-American, Latinx or Hispanic, Native or Indigenous, Alaska Native. And so those three tables that were in uh, said room, one was um, a table for primary care. And at that moment, before even taking a class, you could choose um, to become a primary care physician. That means pediatrics, family medicine, internal medicine, OBGYN. And if you did that, they would pay for your medical school, but then you would need to repay them in the amount of years that they paid for your schooling. And they would place you where there was a need for one of those primary care specialties. You'll recall at that time, I thought I might want to be a nurse surgeon, having been inspired by um, Dr. Ben Carson. And I wasn't ready to make that sort of commitment on that day before even taking a single class in medical school. The second table was a military table where you could um, choose to join the military. And similar to the uh, primary care table, they would um, pay for your number of years of medical school, but then you would repay them in military service. The third table, which is what I chose, um, was a table that had private and federal loans. And so um, I didn't meet my husband until some years later, but he had a very similar experience. And he, too, chose that primary and um, that uh, federal and uh, private loan table. And so together, we owed half a million dollars in medical school debt from that choice that we made before we even started one day of medical school. And what we wished we had was a fourth table that had Elevate Med on it. And what that table um, would include and what you'll hear more about with our program is scholarships for students that come from underrepresented backgrounds in order to alleviate the degree of indebtedness that um, all of us are facing. The second piece of um, our program is mentorship. You can't be what you can't see. Marian Wright Edelman said that, and I believe it wholeheartedly. And so I mentioned I'm a neuro-oncologist. I'm also the most senior Black woman that's, that's practicing neuro-oncology in the United States. And I'm not that old. And so when you think <laughs> about going to, when I travel national, to national meetings or international meetings, and I'm looking for someone who looks like me, who, do, who does what I do, um, we're, we're rare, Um, And we're first in many different things. And so that mentorship is something else that we um, provide our um, Elevate Med scholars because we want them to be able to envision what their careers could look like 10, 15 years from where they are right now. Um, And we also want to um, really um, help improve their curiosity about what sorts of specialties are out there because we recognize that not all of us have the same level of, of exposure to the varied subspecialties within medicine. We provide financial wellness education um, as part of our programming because we recognize that students of color often are graduating undergrad with higher levels of indebtedness as well as medical school with higher levels of indebtedness compared to their counterparts. And so we want to be able to um, help our Elevate Med scholars navigate not only that debt burden, but also start to have discussions about what it looks like to start to create some wealth um, because that's a conversation that a lot of people of color have not necessarily been um, privy to. And then the fourth um, part of our program, which is probably the most um, important, is leadership development. Physicians really are leaders in whatever spaces they hold. And so we want to be able to cultivate um, that part of who we believe is the future of um, the leadership in healthcare. And so Like I said, I wish that day there was a fourth table called Elevate Med um, to receive the scholarships, the mentorship, the leadership development, and the financial wellness education. And that's what we wished we had um, at that time. And so Elevate Med is um, an answer to prayers uh, for myself and my husband. It's meeting a need. Sometimes I um, talk to young people about how to have influence people, you know, that's a buzzword these days. Everybody wants to be an influencer and I tell them find a gap and fill it. And then you will always have uh, influence, figure out how to be a professional gap filler and like um, you will like always that. have relevance. Mm-hmm. That's very interesting. I, all
0: right, I got to use that. A professional gap filler. I'll give you credit for it, but I have to use that. Appreciate that. <laughs> so I have a, um, Kind of a so what question, because I know that some people will hear this, you know, okay, we, we want to create these opportunities for underrepresented groups, but so what? What's the impact of that on the life of an everyday person?
1: Yeah. I think the so what became very loud and crystal clear for all of us during the pandemic when we started to see health disparities play out in real time. And so there are so many complicated factors that lead to why people with similar resources may have different outcomes. And it's complex. And that's where we start getting into systems um, and barriers within systems. And so if we try to pick that apart, one of the factors that we can easily influence to take a step toward eradicating health disparities is supporting the workforce, when people enter into healthcare, typically it's at a time of their most vulnerable. And we all deserve to feel like we belong in the spaces where we're being cared for. And a way to establish belonging is to have representation within the workforce that looks like the population served, mm-hmm. because we know when we have that representation, there's a much more rapid establishment of belonging and trust. And once you have established the trust, there's a much higher likelihood of having uh, improved adherence. And when you have improvement in adherence to the treatment recommendations, that's going to lead to improved outcomes. And so that's one simple thing that we can do is to support the next generation workforce so that it reflects the population, um, so that we can directly influence outcomes as one step towards the eradication of health disparities. And that's something that really we all should care about um, because we, re- we know that right now there are populations that can ha- be impacted by the same disease, but have a totally different outcome. Sometimes you hear the phrase, you know, it's your zip code is more important than your genetic code. Mm-hmm. If we're going to make some movement, some headway um, quickly, And when I say quick, we're still talking about a long game. We're talking about a couple of years as opposed to decades, um, which is what it's going to take to change some of these systemic problems that we have. Something that we can influence very quickly is the workforce. And so cost is the number one reason why um, bright students uh, from underrepresented backgrounds are choosing not to go into medicine. And so, if we can start to ameliorate that particular burden, plus add some additional support, we hope that we'll continue to attract best and brightest. And it's really a crisis when you start to look at the native communities and how many people are entering the healthcare workforce, specifically, how many people are com- becoming physicians. It's really um, a travesty when we look at the number of American-born Black men that are entering medical school. The number is no different now than 1972. So we have to do something different um, in order to attract the top talent um, because we owe it to one another.
0: Mm-hmm. At some point, I would like for you to come back and go deeper on impact because um, some of what you just said is really mind blowing to me. So at some point, I want to invite you back to talk about more about this whole impact thing, because it's important. Yeah, I, love I have a curiosity question going back to your background. This is not your first foray into philanthropy. I happen to know that because I know a little something about something you did at Spellman. Yeah. So we talk a little bit about that Uh, why you did it and how you did it, you know, that was you kind of sticking your toe into philanthropy.
1: Yeah. I had a presidential scholarship for my undergraduate um, uh, experience. And that presidential scholarship included everything, tuition, room and board. And so um, that burden of figuring out how um, we were going to pay for college was lifted for me. Going to Spelman College was the number one best decision, trajectory-altering decision that I ever could have made. And I feel so strongly about the education that I received at Spelman and the um, experience that continues to give to me still all these years later that I um, felt the need to repay the investment that Spelman College made in me. And so, um, as you mentioned, that was my first foray. Of course, I had um, been a responsible alumni and um, would give. But once uh, my husband and I both had paid off our medical school loans, um, the next thing that we did was establish a scholarship in my name at Spellman, an endowed scholarship in my name at Spelman College. and. This was critically important to me because I recognized the investment the college made in me, and I wanted to be able to give that back um, to invest in in other young women who are interested in the pre-med space. Um, And what this taught me is that um, I, I had this belief that philanthropy only looked a certain way. I thought that you had to be extremely wealthy mm-hmm. um, and I thought that you had to have a certain um, skin tone. Mm-hmm. What I learned through this experience is that um, there's so many ways that you can engage in philanthropy and so many different ways that you can make a difference. And, um, and so I thought, wow, this is something that I actually could have done a bit sooner. So that was my first um, uh, foray into philanthropy. And I appreciated that the college would give me an update and who would receive the scholarship, but I also recognized that I wanted more. And so in that more, I started to think about how would I, if I was, if I had my own organization, how would I engage donors? How would I ensure that they understood where their money was going, what the results or the outcomes were of the students that they were help supporting? Um, and so that got me curious about what I might be able to create um, uh, on my own. And so absolutely, the um, establishing the scholarship at Spelman was the first step um, that ultimately led to the development of our own nonprofit, which is Elevate Med.
0: That's really cool. You said something that I want to track back to. Also, you and your husband were able to pay off a half a million dollars in med school debt. How? Like, yeah. how'd you do that? Because... Yeah. I know so many physicians, you know, because of my work, who are still 20, 25 years into their practice paying off med school debt. So, what was the trick?
1: Yeah. It really comes down to values and priorities. That's what it came down to for us. And we had some really great advice um, when we were coming out of residency. And the first piece of advice was continue to live like you're a resident for the next couple of years. One of the things that's so challenging about a career in medicine is there's such delayed gratification. You spend your 20s in training through medical school and through residency and you really don't start earning until your 30s while your friends who had um, gone to New York and had internships and all of those things, they're well into their uh, careers um, by mid to late 20s and in their early 30s when we're just starting off. Um, so it was hard to have some of that discipline, but it was absolutely critical. The other piece of advice what that we received was to um, when it was time to buy our first house, to really think of it as um, an investment, and so looking at na- the right neighborhood, looking at um, not necessarily the biggest house on the block. Don't buy into what you see on TV as to how you think um, doctors should live, but you want to. Um, we picked a neighborhood where the value um, was good, and that um, and that it not only. Held its value, but actually appreciated over time. Mm-hmm. And so, one of the things that we were able to do through um, advice that we had from our financial planner is um, when we bought our first house, we chose well. And um, we ended up earning some equity in the home very, very quickly. And um, through taking advantage of being able to refinance when interest rates had gone down, that gave us some large chunks of money to be able to start to eat away at the, um, at the med school loans. So that was one tangible thing, really using the property that we bought to help mm-hmm. leverage some of and create some wealth while we continued to live very disciplined lives. Um, we didn't buy brand new cars. We didn't buy, you know. I'm not a I'm not a high end handbag shoe um, kind of woman, but I also recognize that the debt had taken on such a burden for me that it was very difficult for me to um, live without thinking about it. And so for that reason, it was top of mind and so critically important for us to pay it off so that we could do other things like start college savings accounts for our children and have the freedom and flexibility to um, endow scholarships and put our money towards the things that were critically important to us.
0: That's very interesting. I'm glad that you got that advice. And I'm glad that you're sharing that advice because it applies to people not just coming out of med school, um, but to people in general. So great advice. So this is the See Something, Do Something series. What advice would you give someone who sees a need in their community, in their profession, in the larger world? Well, like, what would you tell them to do?
1: That you're the someone that can make a difference. I think a lot of times we look around at somebody else. Oh, I see this problem. Somebody else will take care of it. And that somebody might have more education than I do, or they have a different background than I do, or they have more money than I do. We can talk ourselves out of doing something, um, for a whole lot of reasons. Um, but I would really charge each of us with recognizing that we could be that somebody and what would we do if we weren't afraid to take that next step. And sometimes it requires a little bit of investment in ourselves. No, I didn't know mm-hmm. everything about how to run a nonprofit. Um, but I knew that I could ask some folks for some advice and what that looks like is hiring contractors sometimes to help you. If you don't know how to put a website together, you can hire someone right. to do that. If you don't know how to fundraise, you can invest in yourself by, um, working with the fundraising consultant. And so, I think that sometimes we get fooled into thinking that we have to have all of the pieces in place to even start to take that first step. But the truth is that your recognition of the fact that there's a gap um, puts you in the absolute right position to be the person to try to fill it. And so I had to, um, and you and I, Joanne, had conversations in the very beginning of all the reasons why it wouldn't work. But let's talk about all the reasons why it could um, and start to act um, with that energy. So I would encourage all of us to think about how we might be that person to fill the gap
0: i like that and i love the fact that you you know jumped in with both feet and our evidence that you can jump in with both feet and swim so i love that thank you for sharing what you saw and what you did i appreciate that dr porter Humphrey. now i want to invite you back because i think that there's more to this i want you to talk about how the real how the nuts and bolts you alluded to hiring contractors and getting expertise that you didn't have but i want you to come back to talk more deeply about the how Um, and i also do you mind sharing the elevate med website and contact information right now
1: Absolutely. So you can find us at www.elevatemed.org and we're also available on all of the social channels with the exception of TikTok. We haven't quite figured that one out yet, uh, but you can find us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook at ElevateMed. So thank you so much.
0: Thank you. Thank you. And I look forward to having you return. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to this podcast. I hope that you got tools that you'll actually use and share. Subscribe to get more relevant leadership learning. Check out my YouTube channel to stay prepared for leading in an ever-evolving world.